and moved to Australia when he was 19. And I mention that because um, Tony's films, each of the three films that we'll be talking about today, all involve, uh, or in different ways, Tony moving himself from his sense of place into another community. All of yourself is my sense, into another community. So there's something in that, I think, um, which we can talk about during the course of the hour. So uh, the films that we'll be talking about today, the lovely pieces of work that I've had the great fortune to be watching over the last week, are Jew Boy, which is a 52-minute um, short. So strange that it's called a short, because it's such a beautiful, long shape, um, which is set in an Hasidic community in Sydney. It premiered in the Incertain Regard, I'm just trying to get the pronunciation, <laughs> <laughs> I screwed it up yesterday, um, Incertain Regard in Cannes, and also, um, I've thrown myself now, and also um, won multiple awards. It really did beautifully well. And um, The Tall Man, which is a feature-length documentary, which is set in the, lar is it the largest indigenous community? I think it might be. Yeah, yeah in um, Palm Island off the coast of Queensland. And uh, that won Best Documentary and Imaginative. And you also won Best Director at the Australian Directors Guild Awards for that film, I understand. So again, a very beautifully received piece of work. And thirdly, we're going to be discussing Dead Europe, uh, a feature film that was based on Christos Solkos. Is that how you say it? Christos Solkos's book of the same name. <coughs> it was written by Louise Fox. And that screened at TIFF. Sydney, Melbourne, and the Bear Fire in London. Wow, that's really different if I do that with my voice. So I'd like you to um, join me in welcoming Tony. Okay. So um, we'll start with a clip. But I think that, and I'll have some questions for you after we've um, watched this. We're just going to start with the first six minutes of Jew Boy. So, the story can be set up for you guys, we don't have to articulate it, and you can feel your way into it. But I think what's also interesting about this is that we're really going to start by talking about the development of your voice, and, um, and as a result, your process. So, mindful of that, let's watch clip number one, the first six minutes of Jubilee. Sadim alad nefaz marahu kalbanon vachu kaarazim chiku mamtakim vachlo machamdim ze dodi vazeh ha'ei banos Yerushalayim.
What are you doing? Nothing. Why are you in here all alone? It's dark. Papa, they'll be out in a minute, okay? Hey, are you crying? Dobby, do you want to smack in the face or do you want to close the door? Was Israel? Oh, you know, Yeshiva is Yeshiva. When did you get back? Yesterday. Sorry about your father. Thanks. So, how you been? You been well? Well. I haven't heard from you in over a year, Yuri, but yeah, I've been really well. Come on, Rivka. What was I supposed to tell people? Seriously, when they asked me how you were doing, I didn't know anything. Maybe you shouldn't worry so much about what other people think. I didn't come here to argue with Who's you. Who's arguing? Okay. Hey, Bobby. Yuri, come and help me to cover this. That's it. Stretch it right across. That's it. And make sure there's no bubbles, all right? Good. That's right. I put it in the fridge. That's it. Good. You unpacked yet, Yuri? Yeah. yeah. I survive everything and everybody. For what? In the end, everybody always leaves me. Well, I'm here. Um, I, I think that, um, oh, as I said, I'm interested in asking you about the development of your voice and your process, and they're inescapably separate from the development of 
of yourself as a human in a way. So I just wonder if you could talk to this line that I read, which is that I'd thoroughly disappointed my high-achieving family and was working as a taxi driver in terms of the genesis of this project and how it came to be for you, the whole process of creating it. Um, well, yeah, when I had thoroughly disappointed my family and was working <laughs> as a taxi driver, um, it's an amazing job in a way, just in terms of the amount of time you have to think and process and driving around and witnessing different people's lives and you witness so many different people's lives from like you know just the cliches everyone knows from like politicians to homeless people to and you're in this really confined space really intimate space and how old are you at this time? <coughs> i was about 27 i think when i started mm -hmm. driving cabs mm -hmm. and was feeling really lost about who i was as an individual mm -hmm. who i was as someone who grew up uh, in South Africa under the apartheid system, who I was as a Jew who'd grown up classified as white, but you know my grandparents had been classified as vermin by Hitler. Like, mm. Just kind of processing all that, the weird ways in which life works and how systems kind of entrap us into mm. ways we're meant to define ourselves. And I went through a stage which Jew Boy was a product of coming out of, of kind of not wanting to be Jewish in any shape or form, of going all religion is bullshit, all kind mm. of those kind of codes and definitions are bullshit and we're all just people. Mm. And through the process while I was driving taxis, I kind of realised that actually throwing away all definitions is bullshit. It's actually about trying to find <laughs> actually the specificity of who we are and who we come from actually I think enriches our lives. and enriches my experience with other people when I meet them, mm. the more specific, the better, in a way, mm. in terms of being able to connect and talk about where we come from mm. and how different it is. So that kind of led me to the idea of exploring this really lonely character in a taxi who was lost. Mm. And it became, as I worked on it more, and I've always been, I grew up with religion, but it's kind of a, don't know how many people here know much about the Jewish religion, but I was brought up in more of the reform branch of Jewish religion, which is kind of, um, we are talking before about like Catholicism, it's like a Vatican II thing, but it was kind of a split. But anyway, sorry, not to get too much in Jewish history, it's more liberal <laughs> branch, but I went to an Orthodox Jewish high school, so I got to learn a lot about religion and really loved the idea, and still do love the idea of ritual and what it means and when it means a lot to people. It never meant that much to me. Mm -hmm. But I grew up around people who ritual meant so much to them and they got so much from it. So to, that's kind of where it came from and taking a character from the most extreme version of Judaism and putting him in something so secular as a taxi at night. In writing the script, did you go and immerse yourself again in that community at all in order to be able to write the script or did you write the script and then because there's a sense of detail in the material that implies a kind of an immersion process. Yeah so I was writing the script over a couple of years while I was doing short films and I kind of really immersed myself in the Hasidic community and the amazing thing if you're Jewish this is there's different sects but this is the Lubavitcher sect of Hasidism mm. and there aim is to convert, they're very, very evangelical amongst Jews. So they Jews. wanted you. 
So their aim is to bring you in. So I was like, I'm making a film, do you mind if I hang out? And they were like, yeah, come in. Come to the parties, come to, come and study. Come in. So I got to know everyone really well. And then you, it's just so fascinating, all the little ways people get around their religions. You know, you're not gonna, their Rebbe said you're only allowed three drinks at a celebration. Three lachaims, which is like to life, you know, lachaim, yeah. cheers. So only allowed three drinks, they'd pour a whiskey that was like this big. <laughs> and they'd go l'chaim, and you'd be like, within 20 minutes, people are on their ears, you know, and there's a guy in very conservatively dressed in like 1890s Eastern European black hat, black suit, dancing across a table and knocking chicken everywhere, and you know, it's kind of quite wild, wild. and pagan. Yeah, right. But this is the kind of only release these young men have as well in terms of being able to go out into the secular world. Because one of the central tensions in the film, for those of you who haven't seen it, is that, and, and for those of you who may not know, is that he's not allowed to touch a woman at all in any way. Yeah. And mm. the dealing with that. Yeah. And how do you deal with that? I don't know. Yeah. And that's, that's something that really fascinated me, and yeah. this film deals a lot with that kind of frustrated sexuality yeah. and desire and what you do with it. And in, I mean, in my research, a lot of research that's been done in Israel in terms of domestic violence or in terms of uh, men who, with sex workers, like the Hasidic community is overrepresented. And also overrepresented in terms of sex workers talking about men who are violent towards them or treat them like shit. Yeah, right. You know, because it's, it's kind of this thing of going, well, they're fallen people, they're separate. So it's that also that kind it's of thing that comes with a lot of religions of thinking like we're the chosen people how it's spoken about in Judaism or having worked on Devil's Playground, how mm. priests, once they ordained, feel that they're actually higher beings than the Special. rest of the congregation. Mm. Um, you've said that you're really interested in the line between documentary and fiction. And there's something about your, di your directorial choices, like just very clearly, that is you're drawn towards getting things as authentic as you possibly can. Mm. What were the... What was the actor to non-actor ratio? How did it affect you, the way you wanted to shoot it? Like, talk us through it, um, even just the beginning of it. Well, there's one guy who plays his best friend, who's now become a really good friend of mine, Nathan Besser. Yeah. And I accosted him at a Israeli falafel place. Oh, the little guy. While I was still writing, yeah. yeah. And he'd never acted before. And I met him and went, are you an actor? And he was like, no, I'm a writer. And then we started chatting and he was reading the scripts and he came in to, for a casting yeah. for the lead guy, oh, right. but ended up being his best friend. So there were some casting decisions that came through that kind of process. And also, I mean, the hardest thing, I think, in filmmaking is time. Mm. I'm always I'm struggling to get more time. Mm. And because I'm a slow writer, that kind of helped, because I had like two years working within the community and getting to know people and people getting to trust me. So a lot of, instead of getting like, you know, like the guy who played his deceased father is a bikey from the Blue Mountains. Really? You know, so instead of getting people who like are bikies and have got long beards, mm -hmm. most of the, most of the, or, you know, today it'd be easier because there'd be so many hipsters around Sydney. Yes, so but I don't know if anyone's seen the website, website hipster or chassid, and you can kind of guess <laughs> um, whose beard belongs to who. But the, uh, we would manage to get, like a lot of the extras in the scenes were Hasids who were really happy to be involved in it because they 
by that stage, trusted me that I was trying to give an accurate portrayal of their community. It wasn't like a takedown of their community. Did you feel in the shooting of it, in the writing of it or in the shooting of it or in the cutting of it, did you, did you find how much you kind of were interested in the documentary aspect of it? Or was it, I guess I'm saying, at what point did that, was that really um, conscious for you? Um, kind of right from the beginning. Yeah, right. Because it's, it was just trying to, the incongruities of the culture itself coming from a really cold place mm. in Eastern Europe. Mm. And now being in Bondi Beach, which is like in summer and these guys are like just sweating in their suits mm. while people have like surfboards and everyone else is like you know, drinking beer and getting pissed and mm. having like this outdoor life. Mm. And their life is like these old books that have so much weight and magic and mystery to them. Mm. Just that difference, I just wanted to capture as much as possible. Because so you love detail, don't you? It's, that's what this is telling me is that you were just there watching and watching and watching and stealing all the little bits that felt pretty much really and just trying to be it's what I love in cinema is yeah. trying to be as specific and as authentic and it's a hard thing I mean I didn't see Chris Doyle's talk yesterday but I heard him talk like 20 years ago and it was just the beautiful thing he said about so many times when we watch cinema or TV we're so used to the artifice now and we're so used to are there's a conversation at a table so they're going to start wide and go medium and then at the emotional part you know mm. just all that kind of film grammar that we're used to mm. he really inspired me like before and coming up to Jewboy filmmakers like him mm. of trying to find something that surprises us and I think what surprises us is when it feels really real and it's that tension of when it's an actor and when it's you know a chassid playing a chassid yeah right or taxi drivers playing taxi drivers. And like a lot of the taxi drivers were real people as well. And did that feel like it keeps you on your toes too? Like merging this, the actor into that too? Like when you're actually directing and you've got non-actors working with, say, you and Leslie or? Yeah, yeah? it does, but in a really, <coughs> I think the actors really love it. Yeah. Because it terrifies them, they have to be more honest. Yeah. They can't like, with the theatre games they've learned, they can't go, well, I'm making an offer and I'm getting it back or like whatever <laughs> stuff they've learned. It's just kind of they're in a situation. Yeah. With actual humans. With actual humans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, as opposed yeah. to actors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. And so from here I'd like to just let's move into The Tall Man, which is a very, very different project, although there's some, there's some similarities in terms of your process because... This. Do you want to just put the opening caption up on the screen? <coughs> um, this is how the film starts, which is a fairly, I think it's fairly standard, is that right? If there's kind yeah. Of a, yeah, in Australia. Yeah. But I think what I, uh, what, the reason I've got it up is just as a, a kind of prompt for us to talk about, again, the genesis of this project, if you want to possibly explain to these guys, um, what is it that I'm... Well, obviously just the genesis, but also that Chloe Hooper wrote the book. I'll just say two things yeah. that are interesting. Chloe Hooper wrote a book, so it's based on a book, but it's in a live documentary dealing with the living organism of a community. She's a white woman. They're a very, quite a large indigenous community, and you're a white man mm. coming in. Okay, how did, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> how did that happen? Well, it was, it's really complicated, and it's really complicated working as a, 
so-called white person within an indigenous community. Mm. And I was also really aware of coming from, even though we're in the 21st century, coming from a really long tradition of anthropologists or outsiders who yeah. go into indigenous communities and take their stories and leave. Mm. And what was really fortunate in the process is the company that was producing it approached me. And the company was producing it called Blackfella Films, and they're an indigenous company. Mm. Um, and Did they tell you why they came to you? Yeah, Darren was a few reasons. I think being South African, we knew each other mm. a bit. We would got to know each other quite well and mm. got on really well. And when we were living back in South Africa, when we adopted our children, he came over for a conference. Oh, yeah. So we just always speak a lot about race, which I'm really obsessed with and mm. he's obsessed with. So I think he had a sense of me like in, in that way. But also, I think being South African, I've got a different kind of baggage mm. to being white Australian. Mm. So my baggage isn't necessarily with indigenous Australians. My baggage is like having been brought up in this weird white privilege under apartheid. Mm. Um, so there was a fascination with that. And then Darren and I went up to Palm Island about six times. So he, did he give you the book? Did he, he say, read this book? He, got, he said, read this book. And what happened? You read the book and how did you feel? After about 10 pages, I was crying. Mm. And Chloe Hooper's just the most incredible, visceral writer, um, addicted to detail. Mm. And she did a phenomenal thing with this case because it's a case of on this island, this indigenous man was walking home drunk like eight o'clock in the morning and might have or might not have sworn at a police officer. Police officer was arresting someone else and he might have said to the cop, why the fuck are you arresting him? Mm. That's open. What he did say, which is really funny, as the cop was putting the guy in the van, started singing the song, Who Let the Dogs Out? And they call cops dogs sometimes, you know? So <laughs> that was really funny, but it ended really tragically because the cop arrested him just for being drunk which is bizarre in itself. And then 30 minutes later, um, Cameron Dumaji was dead in the police cell and the only person that had touched him in all that time was the police officer. So the police officer ended up, went through a process, ended up being on manslaughter charges for Cameron's death. And that's the first time that's happened in Australian history. That a cop actually went to court. Yeah. yeah. So it ended up being this huge case and what um, Chloe did so beautifully in the descriptions of it was managed to get um, not only to provide a window into this community but to talk about all of us which I'm so fascinated by in general Australian history and how the systemic nature of oppression mm. has worked for indigenous people over all this time. Her access was through which party mainly in that like what was her how, who was she close to in terms of...? Her, she was really close to the Dumaji family. Right, okay. Yeah, and so the she, Palm Island community. Right. And the, Andrew Bowe, who was the first lawyer, um, he got her involved, so she was really close to the lawyers as well. Okay. And then the police were kind of a bit standoffish, mm. and much more standoffish with us because she was just one woman with a notebook and we were four people with cameras and microphones, and we tried to get... We tried to be as balanced in the story as we could be. Mm. And what we kept saying in the edit room was that the audience should be the jury, which was 
like was the easy way to make this film would have been to make um, to have our hearts on our sleeves and make something really strongly political about how outrageous this death is. But I think that still comes across because what's really interesting is you uncover the the case and we did like a circular narrative with it where it's this 45 minutes, 30, 45 minutes we go over again and again is how complicated the law is and how complicated it is with some of the witnesses who, you know, and have spoken a lot about in legal cases in Australia, who aren't used to being in court. Like a lot of mm. studies have been done into, by Indigenous people into Aboriginal English. Mm. And it's the different ways when a policeman goes, or like a lawyer goes, uh, so Mr Bramwell, how many beers did you drink? In the first inquest. And he said about a case of beer. Mm. And he didn't necessarily drink a case of beer. Because the way Roy drinks is with a lot of friends. And there was a case of beer. So he's thinking That's collectively by his nature. Yeah, so even in, even in that, so that led to him not being called as a witness in the manslaughter case, which mm. helped get Hurley off. Like there are these, just these little intricacies of law and culture and misunderstandings, mm. and, which was so fascinating to explore. So what was it like for you? So you were moved by the book and then you you attach yourself to the project, I guess, for want of a better way to describe it. And then you go to the place, and are you seeking permission? Were you and Darren seeking permission from the family to be able to do it? Yeah. And how much time did you spend, you said you went there six times, is that before shooting? Or for sh like how many times did you go before you started shooting? Well, the, um, I was absolutely terrified, to be honest, going mm. just in terms of being, going, I'm, you know, SBS and Screen Australia said, we'll fund this. Sure. And going up and going, what if the community go, there's no fucking way we're working with Tony? Mm. That was like, you know, that was kind of a scary thing to get through. But um, what I realised really quickly and with Darren, so Darren went through a process that he'd been through before in Indigenous communities. Mm. And they knew the films he'd made. Mm. So they trusted him. So they didn't trust him at first, but came to trust him. And then through him came to trust me and saw what a terrible, um, like how I'm just such a city slicker, like how bad I am. You know, we just sort of would hang out and go fishing or something. And I'm such a shit fisherman, you know, and catching a fish and having to kill a fish. And so I got teased a lot and that kind of helped. Yeah. Getting, you know, people getting used to what a dag I am. But the, um, the process of getting into the community was them getting to know us and us getting to know them and all the way through, sort of like with Jewboy, I think, mm. it's kind of all working with actors or any kind of collaboration. Mm. It's people trusting your word and what you're going to do. Because there was another group of filmmakers who'd wanted to make a feature film of it <laughs> and the family and community didn't trust them. You know, because they were just sort of going, we want to take your story with, with us, all the way through even the editing process. The family especially watched everything, and if there was anything they didn't want, we would take it out. So, um, we're going to show a clip from this film now, and I just, th this, I'm really interested in, I know this sounds a very dry way to say it, but I'm really interested in how you ended up structuring the story, because clearly you were able to get access to Cameron's son to shoot an interview with him, is that right? No. So who shot That's that interview with him? 
that was shot before, that was shot by an indigenous um, TV show. Ah, right, so that, okay, that's interesting. Well, mm. so we won't. Oh. Should we watch it first? Yeah, let's watch yeah. it. Okay. It's kind of clear, isn't it? Yeah. That's good. Kevin, be careful there. Be careful. Younger kids in the family always ask, what's going on? I don't know how to explain to them. trying to be strong, but when I think about him, you know, it just take that bit of strongness away from me, make me go all hollow inside. Eric came into my care after my mum died. Eric's been with us ever since. He was exactly like his father. like Cameron, I even walk like him. He used to follow his father everywhere, walk with him, going home, it would be harming around one another. Well, I only met him after his dad was killed, you know. He's obviously different from the way all the family described him before that. He's a kid going places, a lot of potential, beautiful child. When I saw him, you know, he had half his heart ripped out, poor little chap, from that day till he died. But yeah. Then I found that he hanged himself. Today I had his body covered in a sheet. I screamed at you. Get up, Barry. Get up, get up. You just don't know why you just, you know, had to do that. And that much pain and aggression that you'd kill yourself, that's an aggressive act. Gotta be in a lot of pain to take that level of violent aggression against yourself. For a whole week I was crying. I just couldn't get out of bed. I just wanted to die. I want to dream about him, but I can't. I can't dream of him, you know. People don't look after themselves as much. Health-wise, um, almost killing their bodies with drugs, alcohol, etc., uh, and suicide. And that's an expression that's all self-intrinsic destruction. Um, but 
I sort of mean it's coming to a stage we're going to externalise that, and that's where the government and the don't really get their shit together. Genuinely, I think in a generation or two, you're going to find all those young boys who would have normally suicided strapping bombs on and walking into police stations and stuff. And that's not something I encourage. That's just something I can see coming because I see the change today in this generation. film in terms of a film about oppression. Mm. Um, you said there's an intimacy, what is it that you said? There's an immediacy in the film and an, an intimacy in the book that the, and yet this, is in, this feels incredibly intimate because you've got such beautiful access to so many members of the family who are willing to really be with you and really relive it for themselves. Um, did you feel like you, um, there was sort of residue from going so deeply into something that had a double tragedy like that? And then there's Ray Bramwell, another character in the story who also took his own life as a result of this situation. <coughs> did it, in terms of just your working craft, like how did you, how did you wake them up to be able to talk about this stuff and then, and then hold the space for them? Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I don't take much credit for that. I think it's their bravery. Mm. And they've been through a process of, by the time we came along, of an inquest, then a manslaughter trial, mm. then it was reopened. The police wanted to reopen it to completely clear Hurley's name, which backfired. So another inquest, mm. which was like a five-year process, and the family would turn up at court in Townsville and they'd front the media and all the media would talk about was their brother or their cousin or their father, Cameron, who was arrested drunk. You know, so the, the perception in the media of Cameron was never who Cameron was as a father mm. or a man who loved fishing and a man who loved horse riding and mm. a man who provided for his family and a man who really loved 70s West Coast American music and was really good at karaoke. And you know, just all these beautiful things about Cameron mm. as a human being. So they were really, after these conversations, and they realised that's what we really wanted to tell and give honour to him and his life, mm. that then I'd sit down with them with my however many pages of questions mm. and it was them who guided me through it in a way. Mm. And they were brave enough to go over such a tragic time for them. And then, I mean, with Eric's death, it was just like it really broke some of them. Mm. You know, to see Cameron's son commit suicide like that. How are they about the, this particular beat in the film and that <coughs> comment about the future generations? I mean, obviously, you've screened parts of the film, as you say, for, in the whole film, mm -hmm. and you've revisited it with. Is that a moment where people feel a consensus with what he's saying? It's such a strongly it's political... Such a st well, I think everyone I mean, I've... Sp you know, it's, had, it's anecdotal, but yeah. the people I've spoken to who are from remote communities mm. nod. Because mm. they're seeing they what's happening. Mm. And they're like, it's just so fucked what's happening and things need to change. Mm. There was a couple of indigenous people 
who were urban indigenous people who found it, who didn't believe it. There were two people who were like, well, I don't, they kind of, on the one, one person was going, I don't believe indigenous people would do that. Mm. So it's an inflammatory comment that wouldn't be true. And the other person was going, we should take it out. It was kind of, it was a so comment a we spoke about. There was a tension yeah. around that. Yeah, yeah. But I think it speaks to the kind of conditions people are living under. And universalises the film immediately because you're, you have to reflect on other yeah. cultures of oppression and yeah, the yeah. way humans behave. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of the generosity. I mean, the big difference, I think, with this in Chloe's book is Chloe, you get to hear her voice and all the characters' voices. And it's something that's really interesting between reading something, mm. the intimacy we have as, in, as readers yeah. with the reader's voice in nonfiction. But what we tried to do was get, especially me as a whitey, to get out of the way as much as possible. Because mm. what's so powerful is seeing people tell their own stories. Does that relate to that comment you made this morning when you were talking with Max about how you're really interested in trying to make yourself invisible? Mm. Did it come from that project, the beginning of that feeling? It did a lot. It did yeah. a lot. And it's, it's also it's bullshit because I'm not making myself invisible because we're making so many sh choices about mm. shots and what cameras we're using and what time of day to shoot at and mm. you know, where to set interviews and there's so many choices we're making. So on one hand it's bullshit because there's a lot of you know, filmmaking craft we're still doing, but it's trying to get away from, it's also a reason we never did a, a voiceover and had a narrator, which was some people along the way said we should. But you're chasing intimacy, really, are Chasing you? intimacy and chasing a kind of truth that comes from, especially dealing with stuff across a racial divide that has got such a tortured history mm. of ethnography and mm. um, to, for me to get out of the way as much as possible sort of the only thing of you their can do. Voice. Yeah, yeah. And to end up with the family and the community seeing the film and them deciding whether they're happy with it or not. And did they take many parts out? Was it Nothing. There, uh. there was actually one thing we couldn't get access to, mm. which was Cameron, there was a video on Cameron in the jail as he was writhing in pain and calling for help. That the government, because they released a lot of stuff to us, mm. which helped make it like the jury, because you hear the policeman being interviewed in his voice through the film. So mm. you, it's like you're actually in the courtroom. But they wouldn't release that video, and Darren, the indigenous producer, was also really nervous to show that video, like the warning at the front. And the family were like, we want that video in the film. We want the rest of Australia to see how our brother suffered. So they actually, we were scared it would be too full on already too for them. And because I suppose they'd been through so much um, grief with the court process. Mm. Like it's being, you know, going through a court process must be so brutalizing mm. that they were like, no, we want this truth out there. As much as possible. As much as possible so it doesn't mm. happen to someone. You know, it's still happening. It's a very powerful film. It's a great film. Um, Okay, I'm, I'm mindful of our time. I'm going to move yep. us on to, um, to Dead Europe, which is also great. Um, so so uh, we're not, we won't quite start with a clip with this because I want to kind of get us into this process. So this, this, was writ this is based on a book and written by Louise Fox, mm -hmm. right? So at what point were you brought into this project? I initiated it with Emile Sherman, the producer. And in a really funny way, I'd read the book and went, 
I'd love to make this. And what and was it about the book? So many things. I mean, in a fundamental level, it's like the other side of the coin to my fascination with Europe. Mm. Coming from Jewish heritage, chased out of Europe, and the idea of anti-Semitism and high culture of Europe, but the darkness that lies under that high culture, mm. like Germany being, um, you know, I love so many things about Germany and German culture, and then underside, you, underneath that, the, you know, fascism came out. Mm. And we're seeing the same forces at work, it's not to pick on Germany, the same mm. forces at work in Australia and with Donald Trump, and you know, like these, it's a human force. Yeah. So I was fascinated by that, and he took a European of Christian heritage whose family had a tortured secret that was poisoning the family about a Jewish boy that they'd killed. Set in the Greek community. Set in the, yes, it was set in the Greek community of Greece um, during World War II. But also in the Greek community in Sydney. In Sydney, today, yeah. yeah. But it's sort of how those intergenerational things, you know, filter through a family and how hate and pain and denial filter through families and cultures and societies. It's a comedy, really. Yeah, it's a, it's a light-hearted romp yeah. um, that has some very um, beautiful uh, visual decisions that I want to talk to you about and also some great performances. And so I think we should watch the clip okay. and then we can springboard off that. So that's the... This is from I'm about two-thirds of the way in. Yeah. I mean that. Sziasztok! Mindenkit hívjára. Gyertek víz a gésőt. Mit csinálsz te? longer. Sit. Fuck him. I'm paying off a debt. What the fuck's happened to you? Fuck you, you self-righteous little shit. I didn't ask you to come here. Fuck you. Go home. Go home and tell mum that she's right. They're all fucking cursed. And Nick has a junkie and a porn match. Well, fuck you. Fuck you. It'd kill her if I told her the truth. Well, why don't you? You killed Dad by coming to Europe. Fuck. You don't understand anything, do you? You're such a fucking baby. Where were you when Dad died, huh? Where the fuck were you? You think our father was so noble? The great, the silly fucking Raftus. <laughs> he was a murderer. He killed that boy, Elias. I'm not supposed to believe that. Well, it's the fucking truth. That, that wasn't even old enough at the time. Yeah, he was. It was right at the end of the war. Bullshit. Our family was supposed to look after him. They promised his father that they would. They even took money for him. Hid him in the basement of the old church. And then they betrayed him. It wasn't Dad. Dad wouldn't take any money. No? Took him food though, that was his job, taking him scraps and eggs and shit. And then one day he stopped. Do you know why he stopped? Because our great sanctified grandmother, Lucia, 
molested the little boy and then fucked him. She's supposed to be looking after him and she fucked him. Dad saw it, but he didn't do anything, fucking nothing. Stopped taking him food, didn't go and see him, didn't tell anybody anything. What he did was wait for weeks till he was sure that that boy had been dead. Climbed down inside the church. It stunk of vomit and shit and blood. And there was Elias, lying there like a skeleton. He'd eaten the moss off the bricks and the soil from the ground. He was still alive. And Dad picked up a rock and smashed it into his skull. He hit him again and again. And Elias cursed him, swore that he'd haunt him forever, him and his sons and his son's sons. The fucking past. All this shit. Fucking Europe. Don't you wish sometimes that not one Jew ever walked the face of the earth? Get it. Sing about it. It's working with some shadow forces, it's amazing. Um, I noticed in the credits of um, Jewboy that you had a dramaturg on set. And there's a lot of, yeah, maybe even two, I can't remember. But this is, um, is, you know, it's beautiful work. Do you want to just talk a little bit about the evolution of your working process with actors and, and even just specifically about mm. that scene? If well, like? specifically, I mean, this is a really good example of working with fine actors like mm. Martin Chokas is incredible. And um, I've always been a fan of his work and he's saw a lot of his theatre work and he's, and Ewan had done a play with him years before. So it was kind of good because when Ewan did the play, he was like completely in awe of Martin. He was like, I want to be Martin. And then, um, then he, Martin got to play his older brother. This was kind yeah, of the perfect, perfect. dynamic. Yeah. And so he and Martin got on really well. And Ewan was obviously in Jew Boys. We know each other really mm. well. But I'd never met Martin before. Mm. And Martin's got this great rigorous process, which because we're in different cities a lot, we would rehearse over Skype, which I've never done before. And he'd just be in his apartment in London or wherever he was, and he'd start grabbing stuff from his cupboard at times and go, what do you think of this scarf? What do you think of this ring? Like, and it was like he was leading me. He was also testing me mm. and asking me lots of questions in a very practical way as opposed to, like it's sort of easy to crap on when someone goes, who do you think this character is? Mm. But when he's going, what do you think about this ring? Or what do you think about, we spent a long time talking about the first line, welcome to my office. So he works with young boys who are being smuggled for sex across borders in Europe. His office is really shit. He's a heroin addict. Like it's this dungeon of an office. So we spent like three different sessions, which was so beautiful, talking about what does welcome to my office mean? Because we ended up having these incredible discussions about who he is as a person and his history, what would be in his office, and all those things. By the time we got to set, Martin didn't have a single question. And this had all happened over Skype? 
this had all happened over Skype, and then we got to, because we were filming in four different countries, mm. so we got to Budapest on a Saturday, had dinner with Martin on a Sunday night, and I think filmed the scene on like the Tuesday. But we hadn't met in person before then. Yeah, right. So that was pretty intense. Terrifying. And also terrifying because when you're chatting so much with an actor beforehand and you've never worked with them before and we're working so fast going, is he going to be like this on set? Because we're not going to have time to have... Yeah, right. So the you know, whole time you're actually worried. There's kind of a terror well. too yeah, yeah, going... Because yeah. some actors love to have a long chat on set, mm. which I really love too. It's just when you're two hours behind, it's kind of... <laughs> to yeah. try shorten it and get through it. But he had no questions. We'd, it's, it's this beautiful thing of being, we've been so vulnerable with each other and so open with each other. On Skype. That by the time you get to a room with like 40 people in a set and cameras, it's just like, it's beautiful. It's like, let's play. It's just about ta you're taking the layers off the best you can, even though you're miles away. You're in the sky. You're revealing yourself to him. Yeah. He's revealing himself to you. You're finding intimacy the best way you can. I, um, I, I really loved what you did with a sense of place in that film visually. Like every time we arrived in a city, you do some gorgeous establisher that we were kind of vaguely used to, and then shot after shot quietly, you'd peel away the layers till we were in some desperately industrial, yeah. broken down part of that gorgeous European city. Was that a thing that came out of the book? When did that sort of um, vision, that was really distinct, when did that arrive in the process for you? I think it partly, a lot of it is in the book, and it's this idea which is really exploding in Europe now, of this idea of Europeans seeing non-Europeans so much as other. Mm. And that those people who at times have been Jews or Gypsy Roma and now are, you know, predominantly from North Africa and the Middle East, mm. are seen as this kind of other that you can't, like the numbers are so huge at the moment. Mm. Like it's, it's really a fundamental challenge to Europeans about what it means to be European, mm. which we kind of don't have in the Southern Hemisphere as much. It's, mm. it's just a different conversation here, mm. I suppose. Um, so it was very much in the film about the forgotten people of Europe and who are the people who aren't seen who yeah. all around us but unseen. So it kind of led us to, which, are the, which were described in the book as well, but what are the places? In Athens, for example, I don't know if it's changed, but a lot of the centre of Athens was quite run down. So a lot of businesses had closed because yeah. of recession and stuff. Yeah. And when you arrived in Greece as a refugee, you'd get given a piece of paper that said you've got 30 days to leave the country. That's it. Do what you want for the 30 days no camps or anything. Right. So people would end up in the centre of Athens and slumlords right. would be hiring out. So we spent a lot of time with NGOs going through these old buildings and old offices. You'd walk into one office and there's like 45 Algerian men living together. Or 20, level four, 22 Afghani men. Or sometimes you'd find a family but often it was single men. And you said that um, you used some, like you, were, you populated the extras in the film with genuine refugees as yeah. best you could. So going through that process yeah. again, which I did a few trips to, Kate, my partner, was making a film in Germany at the time. Mm. 
So we were based in Europe, which was really lucky. So you lucky. were wikiing from Germany, yeah, right. Yeah, so did a few trips yeah. and got to know people and again telling them what the story was about and that kind of heart of the story is, you know, the refugees are the new Jews of Europe or the new, you know, whoever yeah. it might be, Roma, like the downtrodden in some way of respect. And they kind of trusted us on that and mm. were happy to be a part of it. And it kind of, the film feels like, because it's got these amazing faces all the way through it, and you pay attention to that on the street, and that it, it takes you back to that, that thing you've expressed about re the, the line between documentary and fiction. Did you feel like you were working quite consciously with that in Dead Europe? Yeah. yeah. And I think as well, I mean, it's also how we were really trying, because there were so many demonstrations in Greece at the time, and we managed to get Ewan into a demonstration, but we were always, we were quite a small unit. And we had these great, the Greek crew was so awesome. A couple of them, there were guys on motorbikes who were scouting Athens for us. So we were filming one scene, and they went, there's a demonstration going to Syntagma Square, and it's three kilometers that way. They got us on motorbikes. Were you quite a little crew? We kind of were a crew. Again, it's like really good producing that could do that. Yeah, right. So we left some people and five of us peeled off and threw poor you and Leslie in the middle of a quite violent demonstration. And I just kept going, just go a bit further out into the road so we can get the shot. <laughs> and he would. Yeah. I kind of, yeah, we laugh about it. I kind of tortured him at times on the, on the set. But he allowed you to, he must have trusted you, obviously, because yeah. it's your second project together. Yeah. But it was... But it's that kind of veracity that's so, you, it's so great to actually get, to see the reality of it. I don't know, for me it has a different feeling as a viewer to see stuff that's real. Oh, yeah. With actors in it. Mm. I agree with you completely. And it's like, yeah, it comes a lot from what loving Iranian cinema, I think, too. Mm. That beautiful blend they've, a lot of Iranian filmmakers do. Mm. Of like, you're not sure if you're watching a documentary or a drama. And, often with non-actors, and it's kind of what I aspire to. Um, I feel like we need to open up for questions. We, uh, we'll have a few minutes for questions, so please take the opportunity while you can to ask. I've got it. Yes, Simon. No, we didn't, I mean, Palm Island's such a unique community. People come from 40 different language groups. And Palm Island was basically a prison. So the amount of people who are indigenous to Palm Island, out of the 3,000, are maybe like 20 or 30, maybe 50. Like it's, the indigenous people of Palm Island are a small percentage. So everyone comes from other places. And their grandparents and great-grandparents were not allowed to practice any of their culture. So, um, an issue on Palm Island is people being, trying to reconnect with their culture. And someone like Marindu Yana, who's from a town nearby, there's a town called Dumaji, like a mission town. And again, the people of Dumaji were brought to Dumaji from much more beautiful, fertile land. But uh, Marindu Yana 
comes to Palm Island a lot and helps people who are from that area and helps with culture. But it was kind of looser, I suppose, than being like in the centre of Australia with one clear tribal group that has, has an unbroken you know, access to the land. And that's part of the problems, the dysfunction on Palm. When you first meet the Hodges, Toby, mm -hmm. what do you do to arrive at, at Tom? And, and how do you convey that to your brother? Well, I think that's what time is. It's sort of like a process of osmosis. Like, you start off terrified and going this, like, how the fuck do I do this? But it's the, the deeper you get into it, and I think the more vulnerable you are, the more vulnerable the situations you put yourself in, and the more vulnerable you can be with people, the more open they'll be. And it kind of comes back to that being invisible thing, that going, it actually doesn't matter so much what I say and what I do, it's actually trying to make these people feel that they can trust me and be as deep a part of whatever it is as possible, whether it's an indigenous community or spending time at a taxi car wash speaking to people. But it, but it does matter enormously what you say and what you do, but, it, but you're not, that's not where your attention yeah, is. Yeah, sorry, I mean in terms of like... Your attention is on making them... On them, yeah. 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 That's the it's skill. Better way of saying it. No, yeah. no, but just to be clear, it's actually a skill that you're talking about that you've acquired, which is placing your attention on them yeah. to. Well, I'm kind of a tall person, so it's hard to disappear. You know, <laughs> be Does a that fly answer on the wall. your question? Then I guess so. So you've, you've gone and, and through osmosis, kind of uh, arrived mm. at this vision, this tone, and then you know from from the source material for that, you've got to convey that to your HODs, like the yeah. Of the film. And so, how, is, do you just say, like, just trust me, or do you play the music? Like, how do you convey that? Yeah, sometimes music, and sometimes I make little documentaries of stuff. Like, so, I, I mean, that's uh, an interesting thing we haven't spoken, which I think is one of the hardest things about being a director. And I heard Tarantino say, which was such a useful thing, all you have to do is tell the collaborators what you're thinking. And it's so simple, but it's also <laughs> the hardest thing you know, to tell a DOP or a designer or an editor, this is how I imagine the project or the character or... Mm. But the more clear you can be about that, then the cinematographer who's got incredible knowledge and skill that I don't have can go, I get what you're saying, what about this camera and this lens? And we do this treatment on the look and... Um, so use whatever you can, is that what you're saying? To help be yeah, able to but also I it. think the job is being as clear as you can and yeah. use whatever you can to, mm. to get that clarity. Yes. I try to separate it as much as possible, so just sort of tradition, just do it traditionally, like you do a line run and then a block through, and then I'd talk with the cinematographer who'd been watching everything. So, and then I'd talk technically, but as soon as I can, I get back to the actors and try to make the process, and make them feel as much as possible that I don't give a shit about the technical side. Um, 
so that they can forget it as much as possible. Mm. Um, but my main focus is on them and from, because you're the first audience, so being really kind of available as the first audience, because they're really good bullshit detectors, actors, you know, as well. Mm. It's not going, yeah, that was great, that was great, but can we do it again? Mm. It's like, if it was great, why are we doing it again? Um, but being sort of quite, like really listening and engaging with them. And hopefully, like with Martin and Ewan, there wasn't that much to talk about from take to take. Mm. It was like, oh, maybe it could just start like this. Because mm. they were both clearly in a state. They'd got themselves. so in it, yeah. 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 I think we've got time for a couple more questions. Yes? Um, yes, sorry. Okay. Mm. Yeah. I mean, the tensions have been, it's that really question hard. Is what is it like working with Kate? And what are the tensions? Yes. Um, the tensions are around, if we're both directing, when I made Dead Europe, she was making a film called Laura, and it, they almost overlapped the shoots, and that was really hard, because the shoots are just so all-encompassing. Mm. But there are times where I've written and she's directed, or then she's written and I've directed, and that's how we've managed to manage it so far. But getting to actually, like I was saying this morning, getting, I'm just such a fan of her sensibility and way of seeing the world, which is why I'm together. But is, it's, so it's such a joy as her partner to get to direct her words, which I've done twice now. You know, and her, like, her way of seeing the world. But your way of seeing of, the world's pretty good. Yeah, but it kind of, it's not, yeah, Just it's kind of, you know, they mix. Yeah, so of course, of course. Having that dance is kind of cool. Yeah, exactly. I'm just wanting to bring it back to you, definitely, <laughs> before we finish the session. Um, Thank you very much for your lovely, generous, open, smart self. Thank you. And, <laughs> and thank you to Greenstone, again, the sponsor of the session. And not to make anyone feel super tense or panicked, but I think Cliff Curtis is starting in like one minute. Okay. Thanks, everyone.